Internet privacy is becoming more and more important these days, and using a VPN in general is the best way to ensure you've got it. And ExpressVPN has everything you'd ever want and need in a VPN, and more. I've tried other VPNs, but once I started using Express months ago, I've never looked back. ExpressVPN works on nearly every computer, tablet, and mobile device, and contains a huge network of servers, over 3,000 spanning 94 countries, with great speeds. You can use it to unblock popular online services like Netflix and Facebook, and they value your privacy more than anything. There are no activity or connection logs, and they use PWC-audited servers to confirm compliance with their privacy policy. They are just fantastic, and I could not be more happy to be partnered with them. So if you are interested in trying it out, you can go to expressvpn.com slash clancypasta, or click the link in the description for 3 months free when you order a 12-month subscription. Using my link, you get an awesome deal, and it helps me out a ton as well. Alright, so without further ado, here's the episode. Hello, hello everybody. I hope you all had a great day, or having a good evening, and welcome to another episode of Clancy Pasta. Now, tonight's story is actually an original by me. I've, I've been working on this story for, I think I started it like, months ago and uh, I just finished it up a few days ago. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys think of it in the comments. And uh, make sure to give this video a like, subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, without further ado, I'll just get right into it because I, I think the title is, is a good enough summary of uh, what's to come in and of itself. So I hope you all enjoy tonight's narration. My father worked at an arcade in the mid-70s, written and narrated by Clancy Pasta. My father worked at an arcade in the mid-70s. Pong, Asteroids, Space Invaders, and eventually Pac-Man were the superstars of the screen, and there were no home televisions involved. You had to go down to your local arcade at the time and shove your change into a cabinet to get your fix. Well, there were some home alternatives, but none anybody could play without severe disappointment. He worked there for a few years barely through the end of the decade. After that, he left the business altogether and settled down into a steady 9-to-5 at an initially small radio manufacturing company. He always said he had no intention of staying, but when the company took off and he was promoted with a hefty salary, that was the end of the story. He pretty much lived out the American dream. A house, a car, a wife, and a child. He used to smirk down at me as a boy, the Game Boy frozen an inch away from my face, and he'd say, you know, I used to work in a video arcade before you could even get your hands on a Nintendo game. That was enough to drop the handheld to my lap and lift my eyebrows to the ceiling. Those times were much simpler, unasked questions still years and years away from floating to the surface. Things got much more complicated when my dad got sick. The big C. He didn't even tell us for a few weeks as he contemplated his options. He had always had good insurance, but being an American, from what he could tell, it would only cover part of his expenses. If he had to fight a long fight, it could eventually drain a good majority of the family savings, or perhaps drain it all entirely. My dad always prided himself on taking care of us and finding success in his business, and the thought of leaving us fatherless and in financial bankruptcy was too much for him to handle. Thankfully for us, 
He only contemplated his options for a short time before making the right one. We were willing to do whatever it took, even if it meant throwing away my entire inheritance and more. He did fight, a long good fight. His doctors thought the lung cancer would take him in a matter of months untreated, possibly a year or two at best with treatment, but five years later, he was still kicking. He wasn't as hefty as he used to be, and the thick crop of hair he sported into his middle age had been whittled down to a tiny puff. But he was here. He was around, and he seemed to be making the most of his life. Unfortunately, by year seven past diagnosis, things had taken a bit of a turn. The cancer had spread by that point, and it was devolving fast. We had moved him from his bedroom in the house he'd lived for the last 30 years of his life to a room in a hospital a few minutes from town. He would tell you if asked that he didn't like it there, but he always projected outwardly the best he could. We all knew he did it for us. As things got closer to the end, and my dad knew they were getting closer to the end, he asked me to come into the hospital one day alone. Surprised he didn't want the family to visit as well, he assured me that he would see them later on in the day or the next. I arrived a little later than I had expected due to traffic. What was initially the faint ghost of a distant thunderstorm was slowly morphing into heavy rainfall and loud blasts and flashes of light. I ran inside, my jacket lifted up and over my head as best as I could manage. Up in his room, I pulled a chair up to the side of his bed like I usually did and asked him how he was feeling. He smiled a faint smirk best he could and told me he was doing fine. That was his usual answer to me, or anyone, if he could help it. It was always just fine. I nodded and commented on the storm beginning to rage outside. He loved the sound of the rain. Eventually, he asked me a question. You know how I used to work at an arcade back when I was a kid? Back before video game systems and all that. Of course I did, and I told him so. I remember when you first told me about that as a little kid, playing my blue Game Boy Color, I said. He chuckled. Oh, John, those were the days. I miss when you were that little. Still remember it like it was yesterday. Still remember it like yesterday. He trailed off. We sat in silence for a few moments. His eyes were on his lap, and after a few moments, they drifted back up, meeting the wall before him. I never told you why I left, did I? I thought about it for a moment. I always implicitly assumed that he'd left to go work at that manufacturing company because there was no money in the arcade business. I was familiar with the drop-off in home video games in the early 80s, the gaming dark ages ushered in by a lack of quality control climaxing in the botched development and release of the Atari 2600 game E.T., and just assumed the arcades themselves were taking a bit of a hit as well. No, I don't think you did, I said after a moment's thought. My dad leaned over and grabbed the bottle of water off the nightstand to his left. He always used glasses, but with his body growing weaker, his arms began to tremble at its worst. His grip also wasn't what it used to be. He didn't let it get to him, though. Or he didn't project it outwardly, at least. Putting the bottle down and clearing his throat repeatedly in pained thrust. He relaxed his body and collapsed back against the reclined bed, his head falling against the pillow. He turned his eyes and made contact with mine, 
Son, I've got something to tell you I've never shared with another living soul. Not even your grandparents, and you know how close I was with them. Not even your mother. He already had my full attention, but now he had it glued. Okay, Dad, I whispered, sounding more solemn than I intended. I really enjoyed working at that arcade. I was just the guy who manned the counter who broke $5 bills and dealt slushies, but I would also help unload and hook up any new arcade machines when they came in. I still remember playing Miss Pac-Man for the first time, back when it was an unlicensed mod for the original cabinet. Man, was that something. He paused and drew in a deep breath. He looked down and continued. I think I would have gone on working there for years had it not been for that night in November of 1980. I don't remember the exact day, but it was a Friday. My last day of the week, usually. My dad turns his head and looks out the hospital window, the thunder beginning to pick up and the rain beating against the glass with an increasing vengeance. You know, there was a bad storm that night, and it looked and sounded much like it does right now. Not to sound cliché at all. He spoke with a slight chuckle and a shake of the head. I'd never seen my dad so seemingly uncomfortable before, even when he got the bad news. Even in the days and weeks and months following the shock of the diagnosis, future speculations and past regrets running rampant in his mind, wondering what could have been, what should have been, what could still be. He always had a certain kind of resolve to his demeanor. He may not know the future, but at the end of the day, he could face it confidently, and he was never one to be fully open and honest with his negative states of mind for the sake of us, me, and my mom. But tonight he seemed lost in thought, uncomfortable and hesitant. It was like he couldn't find the words. We were open late on Fridays, but with a storm raging as bad as it was and continuing to get worse, all the customers had filed out and tried to beat the worst of it by 9pm. My shift didn't end till midnight, so I was left sitting behind the counter, sipping a Pepsi, and flipping through one of the first Stephen King novels that were still fairly new at the time. I think I had Salem's Lot with me that night. Either that or Carrie. I still remember looking up and admiring the peacefulness of the arcade. No teenagers, no little kids running around for me to worry about getting into trouble, and the cabinet seemed peacefully silent under the bombardment from the storm hammering away at the windows and roof from outside. It was just one of those moments that stick in your mind like a photograph, and you never quite forget it. I had a lot of those moments that night, but I think that was the only one I could really call peaceful. Dad was staring at his lap again, but my eyes never left him. His eyes closed, and he continued. Around 11 or so, I decided to start getting the place ready for closing. I went around, turned off all the cabinets, swept up any popcorn or snacks dropped by the customers that day, and mopped up a spilled slushy. I always wait to lock up as I exit myself, but seeing as how we hadn't seen a customer in hours, the storm continuing its attack outside, and how my car was parked out back by the employee entrance anyway, I decided to lock up the front door ahead of schedule. But at 15 minutes to midnight, I heard a loud pounding at the door. I don't think I caught the first few bursts as it blended in with the thunder outside, 
but as it continued in its offbeat rhythm, I eventually put my book down and walked up to the door to take a peek. Outside the glass door, I saw this man wearing a jumpsuit and a poncho standing beside a big old crate, about six or seven feet tall, on a dolly. I unlocked and opened the door a crack, trying not to let too much rain blow in, and told him I had already closed down a bit early because of the storm. He told me he wasn't a customer, but had been in contact with my boss, Mr. Avery, about a new gaming cabinet he was to drop off that night. I found that a little strange, because like I said, I usually helped hook up new games, and whenever there was a new game coming in that day, my boss would give me a heads up so I'm ready with all the necessary tools and have time to clear out a space for the new cabinet. But I could see the giant crate beside him, and I figured that perhaps my boss had just forgotten to let me know. I didn't feel I could just tell him to leave and come back the next day. For all I knew, the driver had nowhere to store such a gigantic package. I opened the door, and the man wheeled the crate inside, setting it just in front of the snack counter. He took a few steps back and looked at me. Now in the light of the arcade, I could see the man looked to be about in his late thirties, early forties. I couldn't make out his hair under the poncho, if he even had any, but he had this big bushy mustache that reminded me of something a man in his fifties would sport. He smiled at me, but didn't say a word. You got a crowbar? I asked him. He said he didn't. A little strange, I thought, but I didn't really have time to interrogate the man on why he didn't have the proper tools for his part of the job, so I told him I had one in the back and went to go get it. When I got back, he was leaning against the crate. He didn't even seem to notice me again until I spoke. You want to help me open this thing up? He nodded. I handed him a crowbar and we both got to work. It was nailed in pretty good, but eventually we got the front board off. It was filled at the top with crumpled up newspaper stuffing, which definitely seemed a bit off. I'd never seen anything like that before. Packing peanuts or in bubble wrap, sure, but not newspaper, or that much newspaper in a crate that big. But I shrugged it off as perhaps this cabinet came from a private owner or something. Not a huge deal, I thought. So we lift the thing back straight up on the dolly, and I asked the man to hold it steady while I pull the machine out. And when I pulled it out, I was looking for some kind of name or some artwork or something to figure out what kind of game it was. But as it came out, newspaper scraps falling all over the place, I only saw an ever-expanding color of black, or maybe at best, a dark navy blue. Before I slide it into position next to the closest line of cabinets, I did not feel like rearranging the entire arcade lineup 15 minutes before closing. I walked down the sides of the cabinet, eventually circling the thing a few times, searching for anything besides the color. But there was nothing. I even tilted it over to look at the bottom, thinking maybe there could be a bit of manufacturing text or something. But I was wrong. The cabinet was a wooden frame, a medium-sized screen for the time, a control area that included two big buttons and a joystick, and a small indent in the paneling down the middle of the base. I asked the guy, what kind of game is this? He walked around beside me, and for the first time that night, he seemed to display a genuine emotion, cracking a smile and loosening his demeanor. 
He lifted his hand from his right pocket and slapped it down into the control board while he said, This here, my friend, is a very interesting game. I didn't move a muscle, nor my gaze locked with the man's eyes. After a moment, I asked, You're not a delivery man, are you? He chuckled. Yes and no, the guy says. I'm paid to drop these off, but I actually work for the developer of this game. Helped beta test it and everything. It's one special piece of software, if you want to call it that. He was a nice guy, but the tone of his voice when he talked about how special the game was was like the way a virgin talks about sex. I've got to admit, son, that I was a bit weirded out. I wasn't scared, but I figured this guy might be a little more eccentric than he had put on during introductions. I say, right, and head to the power outlets. I plug in the machine, a cord that also seemed to glint navy blue in the light, and headed to the screen. There didn't seem to be any power button anywhere I needed to push, and there were no bolts I could have unscrewed to check inside. But when I got to the screen, it was still as dead as it was moments before. I asked the delivery guy if he knew what was wrong with it, and I regretted asking almost immediately. Oh, there's nothing wrong with it, he said. Much more calm, but still unnatural. You're doing it right. We had another short little staring contest. I finally asked him, I'm sorry, but... Is there something I'm missing here? The screen's not on, and the buttons aren't doing anything. I started fiddling with the buttons and joystick to demonstrate. He looked a little disappointed at my attitude, or something, and walked a little closer, leaning his head in and gesturing me to get closer. I leaned in very slightly to try to humor him, and he whispered like he was trying to hide something. Okay, I'll put in a cheat code for you. He then cracked that smile again, and I moved aside as he walked to the controls. He looked over his shoulder to make sure I couldn't see what he was doing in a near-comical fashion, like we were kids on the schoolyard trying to hide what we were making so the other didn't copy it or something. And then I heard the tapping of buttons and the movements of the control stick. That went on for a while, probably around 50 or more clicks, but I had no idea what button combos he used. After the final tap of the button, I heard him move the stick a few more times, and then he took a step backwards, not turning to look at me just yet. All right, buddy. He whispered a little louder this time. I think this should get you to where you want to go. As he turned around, he gave me one final look before he turned and walked over to my side revealing that the crease down the middle of the bottom panel had split and opened as little doors to reveal a glow of orange light shining out from within onto the concrete floor. I looked over to the guy, and he gave me a slow but definite nod, that smile not having yet left his face. My father, taking a break for the first time during his story, reached back to his little side table and took a quick swig of the water. He cleared his throat a few times while I tried to process the story thus far. I'd never heard my dad talk this in-depth about his time at the arcade, 
and hearing him so engaged and genuine recounting these memories was incredible to me. I didn't know how long I'd have this opportunity, and to listen to my father at this moment, with the rain continuing to patter against the outside window dreamily, was a dream itself. At least, I thought it was. Thus far, aside from my father's distant start to our visit, he'd given me no reason to feel otherwise. He took a couple of deep breaths, and then continued his story. I got down on all fours and took a look inside that thing. I was expecting to find some fancy light fixture, something that could cause such an enormous glow, but to my shock, I found nothing like that at all. In fact, what I found wasn't even the necessary hardware and components to power one of these video arcade cabinets. What stretched before me was impossible. What, to my eyes, appeared to be a radiant tunnel going off straight forward for what looked to be yards upon yards, maybe even a quarter of a mile for all I know. I wasn't great at measurements, but the one thing I knew is that that could not have existed inside the bottom little box of the arcade cabinet. It was simply impossible, son. Impossible. I took another look behind me at the man, and he just continued his glare back at me with that same grin. He nodded slowly again, and took an even slower step backwards. His face was covered in darkness as he entered the shadows. He didn't say a word, and neither did I. I turned back to the tunnel and looked back in. I knew it couldn't have been real. There was no way this wasn't some kind of an illusion, a prank from the boss, or something of the sort. The delivery guy, or whoever he was, wasn't being of any help, and so, in a split decision to prove to myself I wasn't losing my mind, I got back on all fours and I started to crawl in. Reaching the entrance, I could see that the light seemed to glow from all around, and there were no walls, just a glowing cylindrical tube that radiated fluorescent orange light like a backlit screen. Placing my hand onto the surface, it had a slight give, but bared the weight. Once I got my full body inside and had crawled a few steps, it reminded me of one of those simple rope and wood bridges suspended between two cliffs. It seemed to rock and wobble with every movement, but stayed relatively steady. I never felt like I was going to fall, though the blinding light coming from all around and seeing nothing but infinity at the end of the tunnel made me a bit dizzy. I never felt like I was going to fall through, though, so that was a relief. I continued to crawl down this strange, soft corridor, the glow from all around me beginning to burn into my retinas. I kept on like that for quite a while, but the farther I crawled, the farther the end seemed to move from me. Minutes seemed to pass as I trudged on, and I started to get nervous. The tube was wide enough for me to crawl in on all fours, but after it was too late, I realized it was too narrow for me to even turn around. I was going to have to crawl backwards to get out of there from where I came. Getting a bit anxious, I took a look over my shoulder, and to my horror, the tunnel now seemed to extend infinitely off into the distance behind me. The entrance I'd come through, nowhere to be seen. Just the infinite orange glow, all-encompassing in my vision. 
I started to panic, son, and I called out. I screamed, hello, hello, but there was no response. And another weird thing I noticed was that there was no echo whatsoever. Being in such a long tube, I would have expected there to be a pretty intense echo, or at the very least, something, but my voice came out as dry as a saltine. I stopped my crawl at that point. Squinting against the light around me to the distance, it looked just as distant and hopelessly endless as it had before I even entered the thing. I extended my legs and lay down on my stomach, holding myself up on my elbows. I needed to rest at that point, having been on that crawl for quite some time by then. I was looking down the bottom of the tunnel, shooting out just as much light as the sides and ceiling. There was no escape from the blinding brightness. But as I stared into the glow, my gaze cast downward, a small discoloration began to appear. It was like a small little black line was beginning to come out of the light. I leaned down, my face nearly touching the bottom at this point, and as I watched the discoloration grow in opacity, I finally made out tiny lettering written in some generic font like you'd find in a newspaper. It took me a few more moments, waiting on the words to solidify and stand out from the light a bit more, before I was able to read it. And when I did, an uncontrollable chill shot down my spine, beads of sweat beating my forehead and underarms. It was a simple sentence, which stated simply, Access denied. Sheet code detected. My mind immediately jumped to panic. Thoughts of being trapped in this strange corridor forever and dying here in starvation or lack of water flying through my consciousness at the speed of a lightning bolt, and just as unrelenting. None of this made any sense at all, but I couldn't deny what was in front of me, and I couldn't deny what had happened to me over the last hour or so. Even if I was losing my mind, this was my reality. I had to deal with it, or die with it. In the midst of my panic, I shouted a few more times, trying to get through to that guy or really anyone who I could reach, but to no avail. I then spent the rest of the time looking around frantically, then lowering my gaze back to the words to try and focus my thoughts and calm my mind. And it was one of those times I looked back at the sentence, that I saw another discoloration starting to manifest right below the words, right by my hands. I backed up a few inches. As the discoloration darkened, I could see that it was actually two blotches of black, buttons, with small words printed underneath each. I could feel my heartbeat throbbing in my chest and hear it banging in my ears, so I closed my eyes and tried to take a few deep breaths. The last thing I needed right now was a heart attack, here, seemingly a million miles away from the nearest hospital. When I opened them back up, I saw before me two piercing black buttons in stark contrast to the radiant orange all around. Under the left button were the words, Go back, and under the right, Go forward. I raised my eyebrows at this. 
If it wasn't going to let me go forward in the game or whatever the hell it was that I was stuck in because of that cheat code the man had punched in, why was it giving me an option to go forward now? And what the hell did that even mean, you know? I imagine, or rather hoped, that pressing the go back button would transport me back to the entrance before I started my crawl through this nightmare. But where would the go forward button take me? Based on my experience and where I was, I didn't really have any frame of reference or idea what it could do. After a few moments to soak in what was before me, I decided to take what I thought at the time was the safer option and pressed go back. As my finger touched the darkness, I realized it wasn't actually a button. The surface hadn't lifted out from the blinding corridor, but was just a flat projection on the screen. Making contact with the surface, the go forward button instantly disappeared. The orange glow started to dim, it flickered slightly, and then, for the first time, the lights went out completely. I was cast into total and complete darkness. I held my breath, not wanting to make a single sound, waiting in anticipation for whatever was to come. Probably about ten seconds later, the radiant blinding light returned from all around, though this time, instead of orange, it shined a deep crimson red. I lifted a hand to shield my eyes, it had been blinding before, but that brief intermission of darkness really cranked things up a notch. And as my eyes adjusted to the light, I saw no more than eight feet in front of me, a square exit. Noticing the same concrete floor on the other side that I had stood on just moments before crawling in, I knew that this was indeed my way back. This was my way out of this nightmare and back to the arcade. I don't think I've ever crawled that fast in my life, son. Really. My knees were sore, but that didn't stop me from getting out of there as quick as I possibly could. As my hands touched the cold concrete floor, I about cried in relief. The tip of my shoes making contact with the ground, I collapsed onto the floor, panting and laughing, my breathing all over the place. I'd never been in such a strange situation in my life, and getting back to safety was like the biggest gift I could ever ask for. But as I turned onto my back, expecting to see the familiar sights and sounds of the all-encompassing arcade machines that littered the place, and the beating of the rain and harsh crashing of the thunder, I was taken by surprise. The only arcade machine I could see from my position on the cold floor was the one I'd made my exit from, whereas before it was stationed at the end of a line of probably a dozen or so machines. The rest were all gone, and as I sat up and looked around, I noticed all of them were. And there wasn't even the sound of rain. It was as quiet as a library. Remembering the man who delivered the thing, I called out to him, but I unsurprisingly didn't get a response. I had a feeling he wasn't around. I got up on my feet, and it was during the process of walking over to the counter that I noticed that it looked like a tornado flew through the place. Not only were the games missing, but the concrete was cracked and damaged in places. The ceiling was leaking, dripping what was hopefully just water onto the ground, 
and the counter and all other objects and decorations were looted. Nowhere to be seen. Jesus Christ, I said, my mind short-circuiting. The old counter I used to serve slushies and soda behind was completely barren. No machines, no advertisements, and the once shiny clean counter was covered in a thick layer of dust, broken up only by crusted stains that looked to be ancient. Stepping around the counter, I was surprised to see the old stool I had been sitting on just a short while earlier reading that Stephen King novel. Not knowing what else to do, I lumbered over to it, sitting down with a feeling of numbness growing in my gut. I glanced over to the window, the piercing darkness from outside the only constant from before my strange encounter. Now having full view of the place, the shot continued to grow. Son, you remember when you were younger and that toy store you liked down at the mall moved out? Well, it looked a lot like that. Where there used to be fun and dreams and endless possibilities, there was now just stale air. Nothing. All the machines gone, except for that one. All the seats gone. Every single poster and trash can nowhere to be seen. I should have felt lucky to have a stool under my ass, for God's sakes. I used to keep a couple of beers hidden under the counter in the corner buried under some old clothes for when the boss went home. There were only a few kids left in the arcade near closing. With absolutely nothing left to do and my mind cast into a haze of fog, I absentmindedly got up off the stool and crouched under the counter. I didn't find the drinks there. In fact, the entire pile of clothes I had set up to conceal them was missing as well. But what I did see was some graffiti written across the wall. Or, I'm not sure I should call it graffiti. It is more like the kind of writing you'd see on the divider of a public bathroom. Not fancy or anything. But it read in sloppy, quick handwriting. Go over the top of the stage in level 2 to enter the warp zone. I had no idea what this meant at the time. But what caught my attention was the credit the author gave himself at the bottom of the line. He had scribbled, Taylor, 1985. I read it over and over and over again. What the hell did that mean? The 1985. Remember, it was 1980 at the time, but the way that was written made it seem like he was trying to preserve and document the moment he wrote that little scribble on the underside of the counter. Could it have been a mistake? I thought that to be the most likely, but then again, I was very familiar with that counter and I knew for a fact that before I crawled into that machine, that sentence was not written there. Then again, none of the shit I'd been greeted with as I exited that thing was that way before. Up was down, and left was right. It felt like the entire world was going mad, though I feared it was probably just me. My dad burst into a coughing fit the tension in his vocal cords getting to be too much, and he grabbed his bottle of water once again. As he drank, I stared out of the window, the rain and thunder continuing as our companion. I was flabbergasted at the story he was telling me, but it was almost too strange for me to pass judgment one way or the other. I couldn't tell him that it all made sense to me, and that I believed every word he was saying, 
But at the same time, I couldn't honestly tell him I thought he was crazy or was making it all up. I didn't know what the hell to believe. I just knew that I was all ears, and I think my dad knew that's all he could ask for. He finished up the bottle, and I went over to the open case beside his bed and handed him a new one, cracking open the seal before doing so. Thank you, son, he spoke, his voice much more hoarse than at the beginning of his tale. I think I must have had a strange expression on my face, because after maintaining eye contact with me for a second, he looked over towards the window with a sigh. I know this is a lot to take in, he said, but you've just got to let me get it out. I'm listening, Dad, I spoke with all intentions of sincerity. I really am. Please, continue on. My dad took another breath and continued, not breaking his gaze away from the rain-filled window. Well, after that, I started walking around the place, looking for anything that I could find that wasn't that godforsaken arcade cabinet. I walked the perimeter of the main floor, finding nothing I haven't already mentioned. The stains, dust, rot, and all that. I tried to get into the back room where my little locker that I kept my things in was, but I found the door locked. That shouldn't have been an issue, because I have a key, but I noticed right away that something was wrong. The doorknob had kind of a faded green tint to it, and held a shape different from how I remembered it. I tried to put my key in the lock, but it wouldn't fit. The lock had been replaced. I leaned my back against the door and slid to a sitting position on the concrete. I was exhausted by this point, my head pounding about as hard as the rain had been earlier in the night, and I honestly considered just closing my eyes. But as I slid down further into a reclined position, I spotted something. A glint within a closed vent in the wall near the floor. A reflection of some kind. I walked over and inspected the vent grate. There was definitely something in there. I could see it reflecting in the dim flickering glow of the few light bulbs that still worked in that place. I feared I wouldn't be able to figure it out since I didn't see any screwdrivers lying around for me to get the grate off. But when I looked a little closer, I realized two of the four screws were missing and the ones still attached were barely hanging on. I gave both a few good twists and they popped right out. I reached my hand in and pulled out what was inside. It was a little cassette player, a Sony Walkman, actually. I had seen some in stores around that time and always wanted one. I hoped to pick one up around Christmas that year, actually. I held it in my hand, giving it a good look over, mostly out of curiosity, and then I noticed it was already loaded with a tape. I clicked the cover open, and it shifted back in a flash. Bringing the tape closer to my eyes, I read Being the Change by a band called Oklahoma Rocks. I raised my eyebrows at this. I had never heard of the album or band before, but I wasn't weirded out by it. There were lots of musicians I'd never heard of. But son... When I read the copyright year printed on the bottom of the label, my jaw just about hit the floor. It read 1985. 
I had dropped the cassette, and the Walkman crashed to the ground alongside it. My stomach was in my throat now, and I felt like I was going to be sick. The scribble on the side of the wall was one thing. I didn't even know what that meant or if I could trust some random vandalizer, but the cassette? That was undeniable, and if it was somehow a forgery or a fake, it was the best one I'd ever seen. My mind was racing, and I started to stumble back towards the arcade cabinet I had just moments before escaped. The vent I'd gotten the cassette from was behind the cabinet, and as I turned around, I realized the game wasn't even plugged in anymore. The outlet it had been plugged into before I crawled inside seemed to have been ripped out of the wall. But when I rounded the corner and saw the front of the cabinet, I think my heart just about stopped. The screen was still black, for the most part, but jutting out of the center of the glass was an unmistakable, gigantic round button, backlit with an orange glow. Under it, on the screen, read the word RESET in bold, capitalized lettering. It didn't even seem to be projected on the screen. It was like the words had been printed on the surface. I slowly walked forward, my eyes never leaving the screen. I looked back and forth from the button to the word and back to the button again. I didn't know how a glowing orange button could appear out of thin air from the glass of an unplugged arcade machine, but then again I didn't understand how any of this was possible in the slightest. I just wanted for things to go back to the way they were, to feel like I was sane again, and more importantly, to feel like I was safe again. I lifted my hand and slowly reached for the glowing button. The wide lettering of the word reset began to glow now, finally seeming like an actual object of the screen. I took in a deep breath, closed my eyes, and lunged my arm the rest of the way forward, making contact and pressing hard on the button. I didn't open my eyes for a few moments after that. To be perfectly honest, I was horrified too. I didn't know what I would find, and my worst fear of all was that I would find nothing, that I would still be there, standing in front of that cabinet, trapped in a familiar, yet entirely strange place. But when I did finally open my eyes, son, I wasn't in front of that godforsaken cabinet. I was standing in front of Miss Pac-Man, my finger pressed up against the screen, the glowing sprites moving around frantically. I immediately twisted my head around, and I just about cried tears of unbelievable joy at the sight. It was the arcade, just as I had seen it every day during my six years of work there. The lit up and flashing arcade machines, the low radio on in the background, and best of all, my little snack and slushy counter. The storm had settled down a little bit, but the rain was still beating against the glass. It was still dark out. My eyes darted to the clock above the counter, and it read 11.48. Everything looked just as it should have, but in that same look around, some other things popped out at me like a sore thumb. The first was that the delivery man I had worked with to get that machine hooked up was nowhere to be seen. 
and neither was his dolly or that open crate. And the other, and this was really the big one, was that that machine was nowhere to be seen either. It wasn't at the end of the row of cabinets where I'd placed it, and there weren't any scuffs to indicate I'd been dragging anything there either. I'll be honest, I just about thought I'd had one of the most intense nightmares of my life when, out of the corner of my eye, on the floor near the counter, I spotted my crowbar. I walked over and picked it up off the ground. I always kept that thing locked up in the back, and when I was done with what I was using it for, I put it back. I know for a fact that earlier in the day it was put up, but I did have the memory of bringing it out to help the man unpack that unnamed arcade machine. I would have dropped it right around where it was sitting at that moment. That was about all I needed to see. I locked up that night, but next morning I gave the boss a call. I told him I had to quit, gave him some bullshit excuse about needing to focus more on my school or something like that. Mr. Avery was disappointed, and I could tell he was upset that I quit without any notice, but I was firm in my decision. I dropped off my name tag the next day per his request, and it wasn't more than a month or so later I got hired up at that manufacturing company. My father paused. He was now looking me in the eye, waiting for something. I cleared my throat and said, That's incredible, Dad. That's just... Wow, I don't even really know what to say. And that was the truth. I had no clue what to say, or what I should say, or what I could say. Having listened to his tale, I didn't disbelieve him. He has always been one of the most honest and truthful men I'd ever known. And even if he would keep something from you, maybe he wouldn't tell you if you had a piece of food stuck in your teeth, or your shirt was inside out. He would always speak the truth when asked, and I'd never heard him tell a lie, at least one of any weight. But this was an intense, long, detailed account that he spoke about just like it happened yesterday, and was exactly like I would have expected him to tell it if it had actually happened to him. I believed him. And you never told anyone? I asked, after a few long moments of silence, aside from an interruption of thunder and the continuing beat of the rain on glass. Nope, I never told a soul, he said. I was too afraid to, but my reasons changed over time. At first, I wasn't sure any of it had actually happened for a fact, and I seriously questioned my sanity. The crowbar was there, sure, but during that last call with the boss, I asked him if any games had been set to be delivered recently, and he said no. That threw my confidence, which was already shaky, into a tailspin. I spent the next five years trying to forget about the entire incident, but I could never shake it. That rainy November night played out in my mind on an almost nightly basis, like a nightmare that I couldn't escape. It was awful on its own, a terrible, confusing memory, but it only got worse in an entirely different way when the year finally arrived, 1985. 
I was walking around the local record store and ended up stopping to peruse the cassette section. I was flipping through, mostly just looking, but with the thought of possibly picking up a Kiss album to be able to listen to in the car, when my stomach jumped into my throat. My eyes read the label, Being the Change, by Oklahoma Rocks, and my body froze. I picked it up and scanned over the words again, and then I flipped it around, scanning the back for a release date. Sure enough, I spotted a copyright logo, followed by the year 1985, printed on the back. I held that thing for probably five minutes, just reading the same lines over and over again. Then, I put it back on the shelf, placed the records I had been carrying around with me in a neat stack on the shelf beside it, and walked straight out the door. When I got home, I puked harder than I had in years, and that headache from that night returned. I felt awful, like I was being forced to relive that nightmare of an experience once again. But in the end, I was okay. I was alright. I called up an old co-worker of mine whose number I found in the phone book the next day and asked him how he was doing. Just a lot of small talk. And then I brought up the arcade. I asked him how I was doing and there was a brief pause, followed by a surprised, Oh, you didn't hear? That place closed down in early 1981. Really? I replied, trying to sound as normal as I could. He went on to tell me the owner hadn't been keeping good track of the finances, and when he realized how in the hole with Deddy was, he decided to close down the business and sell everything in the arcade. Not a single cabinet remained, the entire place getting hollowed out. It's funny you should ask about the arcade, actually, my old buddy added. I actually have a buddy of mine whose kid tells him a bunch of the local teens break into that place on the weekends and party. They have a Nintendo hooked up in the back and everything. Pretty hilarious. My mouth went as dry as a cup of cinnamon. I whispered a fake laugh and said something about how crazy that was, then wrapped up the conversation and hung up the phone. That was the last time I talked to anyone who used to work at that place. That was the last time I tried to figure anything else out regarding that strange November night in 1980. I always wished I could just forget about it, but the past catches up with you. These last few years, I've been fighting my hardest against this illness, son. You know that. But I just don't know what the future holds, and I don't want to leave with any secrets. And that's why I wanted to tell you this story, son my story. You may have wondered from time to time why your dad would leave the video game business to work in manufacturing, or at the very least thought back to how cool it could have been to work in a place like that at the time. Well, now you know why I left, and you also know about one of the most defining and horrifying nights of my life. I love you, son. My eyes were beginning to well up with tears, but... I held it back. I love you too, Dad. And I got up from my seat, leaning over the bed to embrace his now frail frame in a warm hug. The rain continued its rhythm against the cold glass. My father passed not too long after that night, about a month later, 
It was just past Thanksgiving when the funeral was held. My mother was a wreck, and I tried to be there for her and give her all the comfort I could muster, but I know I must have seemed distant from the outside. I never cried, at least not around others or at the funeral, and I didn't say much. There was just too much on my mind. The story my father told me was just too strange, too eerie, and asked too many unanswerable questions. Who was the man my father met that night, and what was that machine? Was it even real? Did my father really crawl into the glowing base of an arcade cabinet? Did he really get transported five years into the future before pressing the reset button and finding himself back in the present day? I didn't know. I couldn't say for sure that any of it happened, or if it was all just a horribly vivid dream that lined up with a slew of coincidences. But I know that my father meant what he said. He wasn't lying, he actually experienced it. And that was good enough for me. As my father's casket was lowered into the grave, I felt as though the nightmare that plagued his memory for the remainder of his life was being laid to rest with it. No more would he have to replay that night over and over again in his head. No longer would he need to question his own sanity. No longer would the fear that something like that could happen again would ever take place. It was all over. All of it. I left the funeral feeling a tinge of relief. I was distraught at his passing, the whole family was, but I was confident that he was finally at peace. And in the end, I suppose that's really all that matters. As I drove home, the radiant orange glow of the sunset filled me with hope and wonder, and although I would never share this with anyone, I felt as though I could feel my father's presence in the car with me. It was warm and accepting, filled with comfort, confidence, and love. I smiled, and my father seemed to smile back through the sunset. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. If you did, make sure to check out more of the author's work in the episode description and go to youtube.com slash clancypasta to hear new episodes first. And if you'd like your story featured in an episode, feel free to email it to clancypastastories at gmail.com. You can always get your creepy cool merch at teespring.com slash stores slash clancypasta store. And I hope you all have a great night. Cheers.